Welcome to the Nursing Podcast. This is Landon. And this is Monique. And this month, we are not in the kitchen of knowledge. <laughs> we are in an education room of wisdom. Mm. Oh, at, very good. At a very large hospital where we happen to be teaching a group of nurses other things, but have managed to get this off today because we are late. Yes, we apologize. It's been a little difficult getting together with the Christmas season and uh, that sort of thing. So this is a late Christmas present for you guys or a Happy New Year present. And as much as the questions from many of you are, Monique and I don't live together. (laughs) And so we do need to organize getting from one city to the other to do these podcasts. But the benefit of this one is it is going to be on the internet about five minutes after we record it. Excellent. Today, January 7th. Good. 2016. Yeah. And I'm kind of excited, actually, because we're going to be talking about something. I was actually at work yesterday and uh, had several of these cases. So it is very timely. We're going to talk about HIV in 2016. It ain't all about Charlie Sheen. I remember when I was in nursing school way back in the caveman days, and we were kind of in the throes of ensuring that we were well protected against HIV. We were basically in an Ebola suit. And then a few years later, we understood more about the disease and we moved into this world of universal precautions. And back in 2014, we all remember when the HIV ward at St. Paul's Hospital closed due to a decline in this once deadly disease. And we moved towards living with HIV as opposed to dying with HIV. And for those of you from other parts of the world, St. Paul's Hospital in Mm -hmm. Vancouver, British Columbia is one of the kind of world-leading centers in HIV research, care. Absolutely. Kind of the HIV epidemic hit Vancouver really hard when it first came out, and, and this hospital opened up a ward to care for these people. And, and as Monique said, a couple of years ago, they shut it down because there just was not the volume of inpatient care required anymore. They, de- they definitely still do research, prevention, and, and hospice absolutely. care, but this acute care ward for HIV was, just wasn't required anymore. Which was exciting, which meant that we were actually getting to a point where we were treating um, HIV and people were living longer. Um, but unfortunately, because of that, though, we have developed a bit of a cavalier attitude, particularly in North America, in saying that we may have cured HIV. Um, So recently in the news that Charlie Sheen had been diagnosed with HIV is perhaps a really good wake-up call for us to revisit our knowledge of HIV. In fact, in July of last year, the International AIDS Society was held in Vancouver, and it was called um, Towards a HIV Cure Symposium. And World AIDS Day was actually December the 1st, 2015, and they've called it Getting to Zero, Ending AIDS by 2030. But in order to meet this goal, we as nurses need to understand the guidelines. We need to be active in health promotion and prevention and to be knowledgeable about current therapy. Uh, Before we start, perhaps we need to remind everyone that despite the fact that we don't hear much about new cases of HIV, HIV continues to be a major global public health issue. And so, yeah, just a few interesting tidbits from the World Health Organization. HIV has claimed more than 34 million lives so far. Uh, In 2014, 1.2 million people died from HIV-related causes globally. 37 million people are living with HIV at the end of 2014. Takes a Mm -hmm. while for these stats to get updated. Yeah. Um, 2 million people becoming newly infected with HIV in 2014. So that's a rather high percentage of new infections compared to uh, people living with it. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is the most effective sorry, affected region uh, with 26 million people living with HIV in 2014. And that's about 70% of the 
um, total, sorry, they will have 70% of the total new HIV infection. So a big area of focus yeah. um, for some of these people doing international work. Scary statistic, it's estimated that only about 53% of people with HIV know their status. Yeah, that's and, really scary, isn't and it? And we'll, we'll talk, you know, we can, we can surmise why as we yeah. talk through the rest of this podcast. Um, uh, between t- 2000 and 2015, new HIV infections have fallen by 35%. AIDS-related deaths have fallen by 24%. And so that's 7.8 million lives saved, although very clear, they still have HIV. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have not died from it. So let's talk uh, just briefly the difference between HIV and AIDS, uh, a bit of a review. So HIV, or the human immunodeficiency virus, targets the immune system and weakens people's defense against pretty well routine infections for people with a good immune system and some types of cancer. We typically measure this immune system function by a CD4 cell count, which Mm -hmm. you'll talk about next. Uh, The most advanced stage of HIV infection we call acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or AIDS takes between two to 15 years to develop depending on the individual, depending on some of the treatments they've had. And that is defined by the development of certain cancers, infections, or some other severe clinical manifestations. So I'm going to talk a little bit about CD4 counts, because certainly when you have patients with HIV, that's one of the factors that you should be asking them or measuring. So a CD4 count measures the number of CD4 T lymphocytes. In people with HIV, it is the most important lab indicator of how well their immune system is working and the strongest predictor of HIV progression. To understand why it's important, it's helpful to know what CD4 cells are. They're often called T cells or T helper cells, and it's a type of white blood cell that plays a major role in protecting your body from infection. They send signals to activate your body's immune system when they detect intruders like viruses or bacteria. Once a person is infected with HIV, the virus begins to attack and destroy the CD4 cells. HIV uses the CD4 um, cells machinery to multiply, makes copies of itself, and then it spreads throughout the body. This process is called the HIV life cycle. The CD4 count of an unaffected adult or adolescent who is in generally in good health ranges from about 500 to 1,200 cells per millimeter square or cubic 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 millimeter millimeter. sorry cubic say the three is a little small for me with my glasses on really i'm the math nerd and you're not no that's true a very low cd4 count which is less than 200 cells of cubic millimeters is one of the ways to determine whether a person living with hiv has progressed to stage three infection which is aids so a CD4 count is also used to decide when to actually start antiretroviral therapy, ART. ART prevents HIV from multiplying and destroying the CD4 cells. It cannot cure HIV, but it can help patients live a longer, healthier life and reduce the risk of HIV transmission. ART is recommended for everyone with HIV, but the urgency to start it is greater in patients with low or rapidly following CD4 counts. A falling CD4 count indicates that your HIV is advancing and damaging the immune system. After a person starts ART, the CD4 count is one way to check how well your medication is working to monitor the effectiveness of the HIV regimen. Perfect. The other thing that we talk about when we talk blood work and, yeah. and levels is viral load. And so the it's a, a blood test you can order. And the viral load basically refers to the amount of HIV, uh, the amount of the virus in a sample of blood. When the viral load is high, there's more HIV in the body. 
And it means that the immune system is not fighting the HIV as well. The goal of antiretroviral therapy is to move the viral load down, ideally to undetectable levels. Mm -hmm. Having an undetectable viral load doesn't mean that the virus is completely gone from the body, just that it is below the level that the lab test can measure. It means that a patient still has HIV, still needs to stay on ART to remain healthy. And this is a really important concept that I know myself, I'm noticing in society now, is there's these uh, undetectable viral load. And actually with relative frequency, I remember the first time there was someone with an undetectable load, and it was a big journal article quite a few years ago that that had they cured it or hadn't they, and, and... and now it's actually quite common to find someone who will say to you, and again, we're in a city where talking about HIV status is, is an open language yes, for a lot absolutely. of the population, where they'll say, oh, I, it's, I have HIV, but I'm undetectable. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we understand that uh, that we get that message out to the general public. That absolutely. That doesn't mean you don't have HIV. <laughs> absolutely. And that you can't pass it on. And that you can't pass it yeah. on. And so... So there are some, it means you have a greater, obviously you have a lower chance of transmitting it to another person because it is undetectable, the viral load is low, but it can still exist in things that we don't test viral load in. So semen, vaginal, rectal fluids, breast milk, other parts of your body, we we must leave the message, currently the recommendation is the message is still that they are HIV positive and can transmit HIV. So it can be found in, in genital fluids it it may also be able to go up in between tests we're taking a snapshot in time of a certain volume of blood from a certain part of the body Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean another part of the body doesn't have a higher viral load or that in a week something might happen and your viral load goes up so it is a snapshot in time the viral load can go up without any symptoms again yeah. Uh, as well, STIs or sexually transmitted infections can increase your viral load in your genital fluids. So if a person with HIV also then gets an STI, they may have a higher transmission risk because mm-hmm. their viral load goes up in their... Uh, because of the STI because itself. Because of the STI yeah. itself, even if the viral load is undetectable. So there's you know, lots of different things happening. The general message mm-hmm. right there is just because it's undetectable. Mm-hmm. still are at risk of transmitting HIV. Exactly. So one large multinational study has indicated that antiretroviral therapy that consistently suppresses HIV is highly effective at preventing sexual transmission in heterosexual couples where one person is HIV infected and the other is not. Uh, that study did find that ART reduces the risk by about 93% or more if viral suppression is achieved and maintained. Mm-hmm. And they did not observe HIV transmission during the study when an HIV-infected partner's virus was stably suppressed by ART. Yeah. So there's, you know, and you may listen to that and go, but hold on, you just told me that we should still be worried about it. Obviously, uh, there's still that 7% that mm-hmm. uh, HIV transmission would have happened. So let's go with the guaranteed things yes. and and again this is a huge research area lots of worldwide research going on in this but the the message right now although there's some of these studies is let's still go with universal precautions and, yeah and we'll talk about some of those later yeah so i'm going to run through these two quite quickly because i think it is information that most of you know uh, let me talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms and a little bit about transmission we kind of touched on both of those things so the symptoms really vary of hiv depending on the stage of the infection most people living with hiv tend to be the most infectious in the first few months because many of them are unaware of their uh, symptoms after the first initial infection patients 
patients might experience um, no symptoms or kind of like influenza type symptoms, fever, headache, rash, or sore throat. As that infection progressively weakens, then you end up with swollen lymph nodes, weight loss, fever, diarrhea, cough. And without that kind of treatment, they also then develop severe illnesses such as TB, cryptococcal meningitis, and cancers such as lymphoma and Carposi sarcoma. The thing is, anytime somebody has like a viral illness that lingers for a long time and they don't get any better, you do have to think, is this HIV that, as we said, 53% only know their status. So maybe this is their first uh, indication that they have HIV. Don't forget that HIV can be transmitted via the exchange of any body fluids from infected individuals, such as blood, breast milk, semen, vaginal secretions. You cannot become infected through daily contact, ordinary contact, like kissing, hugging, shaking hands, or sharing personal objects like food or water. Your risk factors certainly are having unprotected anal or vaginal sex, having any other sexually transmitted infection, such as syphilis, and unfortunately, we certainly are seeing a rise in syphilis here in Vancouver, Um, herpes, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and bacterial vaginosis. Sharing contaminated needles, syringes, other injecting equipment and drug solutions when injecting, receiving unsafe blood transfusions, unsafe injections, any kind of medical procedures that involve unsterile uh, cutting or piercing, and then accidental needle stick injuries. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about some of the preventive measures, Mm -hmm. and we'll start with the first most basic one is uh, male and female condom use. So correct and consistent use of male and female condoms during vaginal or anal penetration can protect against not only STIs, but also Uh HIV. And evidence shows that a male wearing a latex condom uh, has an 85% or greater protective effect against HIV and other STIs, depending on the study you read. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that uh, certainly in a lot of our health authorities, we're starting to offer universal testing. And since September 2006, the CDC began recommending that doctors routinely test every patient for HIV regardless of their risk. And that, again, speaks to that 53% who only know their status. Testing only high-risk people misses many, if not the majority of early HIV infections. This type of testing is known as opt-out testing. In this form of testing, the test is given unless patients specifically refuse it. In general, opt-out testing has been found to be an effective way of increasing the number of people screened for disease when compared to only taking blood when patients request it. The CDC recommends that routine HIV testing should be done in all pregnant patients, patients between the ages of 13 to 64, all patients who are seeking STI testing or treatment, and all patients who have been diagnosed with TB. Now that's kind of interesting, but TB is the most common presenting illness among people with HIV. It is fatal if undetected or untreated and is the leading cause of death among people with HIV, responsible for one um, one out of every three HIV-associated deaths. So early detection of TB and prompt linkage to TB treatment and ART can prevent these deaths. Um, The other thing that's probably a little controversial is voluntary medical male circumcision. Uh, When it is uh, safely provided by well-trained health professionals, so not some dirty needle in the back of somebody's kitchen, it does reduce the risk of heterosexually acquired HIV infections in men by approximately 60%. This is really quite a key uh, intervention in generalized epidemic settings with high HIV prevalence and low male circumcision rates. Excellent. 
So some of the more public things we hear about are antiretrovirals. And so we can use those as a form of of prevention. So Mm -hmm. a a 2011 trial confirmed that if an HIV-positive person adheres to an effective ART regimen, the risk of transmitting the virus to their uninfected sexual partner can be reduced by 96%. So the World Health Organization recommendation is to initiate ART in all people living with HIV to reduce HIV transmission. You combine that with condom use excellent and all the other things 96 percent plus 85 percent you're getting to a very safe level there now i have to admit my ignorance i'm uh in toronto a couple months ago and out for dinner with a few people none of whom are in healthcare, Mm -hmm. and all of whom start talking about prep and i had to do the deer in the headlights look <laughs> try to look a little intelligent which if any of you have ever met me know that if i don't know what i'm talking about you can read it in about two seconds and i had no idea what this prep was and so this is pre-exposure prophylaxis for hiv negative people i had never heard of this mm-hmm. apparently it is a rather um uh, involving thing yes it that, is uh, at-risk people take is, yeah. is the same antiretroviral therapy as infected people they take it before they're infected and so this is the daily use of an antiretroviral drug by hiv uninfected people to block the acquisition of hiv mm-hmm. so more than 10 randomized controlled studies have demonstrated the effectiveness of prep in reducing hiv transmission among a range of populations including serodiscordant heterosexual couples that's where one has hiv and one One does not men who have sex with men transgendered women high-risk heterosexual couples and people who inject drugs so so the high-risk populations uh it's a very effective form of treatment and and it's you know nursing is so vast we can't know everything but that was interesting for me and Mm -hmm. maybe half of you listening already knew that but as someone who works very close with these high-risk populations, I had never heard of PrEP. Yeah. So that was my learning from the general public uh, that I was out for dinner with in Toronto. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> and actually almost started the impetus for this whole podcast was how we both said to each other, we don't kind of know the current stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in 20, September 2015, the World Health Organization published this guideline on when to start ART and on pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. And it's uh, you know on the World Health Organization website. And it definitely just recommends this as a part of a combination of prevention approaches. Yeah, it's quite interesting. In fact, uh, one of the nurses and I were just talking about it yesterday. And I promised to give her a bit of a shout out. So Donna, Donna who works with me, uh, was saying that maybe in a few years, it may be like the morning after pill where you've had sex with perhaps a high risk person and then you can just come in and ask for it or maybe even get it over the counter. And so that might actually be where we're going to go for it. Now, that leads me to the whole post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. Um, And usually the post-exposure prophylaxis is the use of um, antiretrovirals within 72 hours of exposure to HIV in order to prevent infection. Now, we do need to include with that, not just giving the medication, but the counseling, any HIV testing, and then looking at risk and wondering if they need Uh, additional 28-day course. So it isn't something that you just give without thinking of the whole package, which includes the counseling, the testing, and then the follow-up that might require them to have another uh, month 
of antiretrovirals. Now, I need to let you know that healthcare workers, because this is the thing that we are always concerned about, and lots of patients come into the emergency department being exposed. And so patients who are exposed to a needle stick involving HIV-infected blood at work have a 0.23% risk of becoming infected. In other words, 2.3 out of every 1,000 such injuries, if untreated, will result in infection. Risks of exposure due to splashes with uh, body fluids is thought to be near zero, even if the specimen is overly bloody. Uh, Fluid splashes to intact skin or mucous membranes are considered to be extremely low risk whether or not blood is involved. Um, PEP is used for anybody who may have been exposed to HIV in the workplace. Um, If They're getting cut or stuck with a needle that was used to draw blood from a person who may have HIV, getting blood or other body fluids, they may have lots of HIV in their eyes or mouth, and getting it on their skin that's not intact, so scraped or um, chapped or dried or have certain rashes. So that's that's evaluated for exactly. So we don't all. That doesn't mean you're going to get it. No, absolutely not. Evaluated for it. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, PEP can also be used to treat people who have been exposed to HIV during a single high-risk event unrelated to work. So I have certainly had patients who have come in with uh, having an exposure to unprotected sex, you know, got a little carried away, didn't have a condom or whatever, and there we go. Or maybe needle sharing or a sexual assault. We may certainly give somebody uh, post-exposure prophylaxis at that time. Excellent. Uh, Another reduction or prevention strategy is harm reduction for injecting drug users. And obviously using, not reusing equipment is Mm -hmm. the easy way to go there. Uh, Convincing people and or making those supplies available is the challenge. And so there are clean syringe or needle exchange programs, opioid substitution therapy for people dependent on injection drug use yeah. um, give them something yeah like a, a little, methadone program a little or more something. regulated yeah. through another means absolutely uh, as well hiv testing counseling education so that they actually get the message to not share needles which in a large urban setting is mm-hmm. pretty hard to miss yeah however in smaller places if you don't have a street nurse out there handing out needles it can be probably more of a challenge yeah giving them access to condoms, uh, management of their STIs, tuberculosis, and really monitoring in that follow-up. And it's it's easy for us as, as big city nurses to yeah. think, well, there's no way you could miss these people trying exactly. to get this message out. But you know, we have to think of people in smaller places, other parts of the world, where this this uh, just even the messaging around that, you know, someone walks into my emergency department and says, I need a clean needle. Typically, we'll just give, give it them to the them. Give them the needle. Yeah, absolutely. And I have worked in some places where nurses are horrified that that would happen. Yeah. The, the message of, well, you're enabling them and that kind of thing. And, and really, if we use the research, we find that uh, harm reduction for people who are going to do this anyway is the way to go. Absolutely. Um, and of course, again, we do think of it as a package, right? We don't just give them needle. We give them counseling. We do HIV testing. We talk about different options, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. it isn't a one-time thing. So the last thing we kind of want to talk about before we uh, conclude is the elimination of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. So the transmission of HIV from an HIV-positive mother to her child during pregnancy 
labor, delivery, or breastfeeding is called vertical or mother-to-child transmission. In the absence of any interventions during this stage, the rates can be between 15 to 45 percent. So what we're trying to do is give them meds um, that can be nearly fully preventable if both the, the mother and the child are provided with ARV drugs throughout the stages where infection could occur. So um, the World Health Organization recommends options for prevention of this um, vertical or mother-to-child transmission, which they call MTCT, which includes providing ARVs to mothers and infants during pregnancy, labor, and the postnatal period, and offering lifelong treatment to HIV-positive pregnant women regardless of their CD4 counts. Again, this is really typically that's what's happening in Africa, right. and that's really quite helpful. Um, but a lot of their challenge as well. It's getting, getting the drugs getting to the drugs. them, right? Yeah. It's, it's access to medication, especially things like the cost of it and all of those things that we don't struggle with as much, and certainly which is why it's such a global problem. So um, I, that's about it for this week, so, yeah. or this month. Yeah, oh, I was going to say. God, we're not doing these <laughs> weekly. Oh, I know. I don't think we'd be able to keep up. Uh, so in conclusion, HIV, obviously, uh, it still exists. And mm-hmm. although these days many people will die from other chronic health conditions with HIV, yeah. uh, it still does claim many lives in, in parts of the world, especially in third world countries. Um, we as nurses obviously have a role to play in this global fight to, mm-hmm. that has been declared to end uh, HIV and AIDS by 2030. Yeah. So big things, promoting universal testing, absolutely. Uh, support and educate the patients on preventive measures. And we also have to arm ourselves with the knowledge and how to treat patients living with HIV. And so that's really was our uh, goal with this podcast mm-hmm. was to bring everyone up to date because yeah. I know for me in the last few months I've had patients knowing more about it than I have yes. and even just members of the general public apparently exactly. knowing more about it so that's typically what comes a podcast topic is, exactly is when we are educated by <laughs> people we didn't expect to get educated by it is very exciting as nurses though because I think when you think about not just what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis to understand that we actually have a role in the way that we globally manage this and and that we have a part in being able to end it. And it's not just an Africa problem. It's not just a Charlie Sheen problem. It is a problem for all patients right now. And we need to be able to have lose some of our judgment and be able to understand the impact our prevention and education and testing all have in this global fight. So get out there and fight the and, big and good the, fight. The thing I like about this is, is the universal testing for sure is something yeah. that I know in our health agencies that we work in it's not even asked anymore if you order as much as a cbc the hiv is automatically included on there there's probably some frequent patients who've had about 14 hiv tests (laughs) in one month but it's something nursing can do is even if you're not in a place that it's standard is to offer it absolutely we're we're poking you anyway exactly this is really good research saying we should be doing universal testing do you want an hiv test while we do it and the street nurses actually can do point of care testing in our in our big cities so it is available out there we just need to ask the question and push the topic don't we absolutely all right well that's it for this month and we will see you in february yes absolutely or we'll hear you anyways in february all right goodbye bye For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G.
You can follow us on Twitter at NurseMCast, and also find us on Facebook at NurseMPodcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca